This is Bad Movies We Love, part of the Scheiss Podcast Network. Greetings, bad movie lovers. We are gathered here once again today for another episode of Bad Movies We Love. As always, I am your host, Nick Scheist, and... If you're listening to this, you are the Resistance. And I've got some good news for the Resistance. The first bonus episode is officially edited, finished, ready to be published. I just gotta figure out how to get it up for members. That sounded awkward. But I'm working on getting that bonus episode file accessible to members on coffee.com slash badmovieswelove. If you enjoy the show and you're feeling friendly, you can always go to your preferred podcast platform and subscribe to the show. Give it a rating. That way I can find out what you think and get better, hopefully. In the meantime, you're stuck with me as is, so buckle up. But for this episode, I was joined by my friend Newman from the Movies for Days podcast. He's also a wonderful contributing member to the Scheist International Film Club. And we went back and forth a little bit about which movie we were going to choose. There was a lot of creature features on the list. And at the time he approached me, we were in the middle of September. So when I saw that Return of the Swamp Thing was on the list, I had to seize the opportunity and take the plunge into the bog. Do not even need to watch the first one. It doesn't even matter. What the fuck did I just hear? Bone out the bayou. Why is there lightning coming out of those weapons that they're wielding? Swamp Thing is just punching everybody. He's punching constantly. He's throwing grenades. They bust out like the regular soda. They turn on some MTV and they're like, porno time. And I don't care how that sounds, because they look great. Just reaching down to his waistline and pulling out this phallic fruit, and then she takes a bite out of it. They share a little nibble. Yeah, go ahead. Get bent out of shape, bitch. It's Swamp Thing. We're doing what we want. Newman, it's a pleasure, my friend. Uh, I'm glad that we were able to work something out. This is sort of a delayed uh, September special, which I don't know. I released a Halloween episode like nine minutes into November, so I don't do things in a super timely fashion around here, but I get to it when I can. Thank you for joining me, though. And we're here to talk about uh, Return of Swamp Thing or the Return of Swamp Thing, Return of the Swamp Thing. It's one of those for sure. <laughs> I, I can't sit here and pretend to be a super fan and be like, yeah, no, I know exactly how the title goes. Because now that you've said all three of them in a row, they really they sound like any of them would be apt. But I'm I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be talking about a superhero movie that happened way back in the days when superhero movie was not a big budget concept. You know what no. I mean? This is like we're talking like Masters of the Universe. Oh yeah, and, that's and that's, <laughs> that's what we're in for tonight with this movie, and and it was such a good time to revisit it. 
and go down the massive internet rabbit hole that I went down of Swamp Thing uh, to get prepared for this. But it really feels like I just sort of let myself get pelted in the face with a bunch of water balloons and said, okay, that's how I'm prepared now. So, like, I didn't take any notes. Uh, I'm just, I'm game as fuck to to jump all up into this Swamp Thing action. Well, I'm glad. And for anybody that is actually wondering or going to listen to this and wants to watch the movie, it is called The Return of Swamp Thing. Uh, but this is a sequel to the original Swamp Thing, which I am much more familiar with. But is there a reason that we jumped to the sequel rather than starting with the first Swamp Thing? Let me go ahead and break this off because I was curious if we were going to get into like a Newman, why did you insist on doing this? Mm-hmm. And I just want to <laughs> let people, let me peek you all behind the curtain because here we are on bad movies we love. And, you know, my show is very celebratory and I am accustomed to just really loving a movie regardless of uh, budget or or prestige or critical reaction. So it was a little difficult for me to actually get my head around the notion of like, wait, what's something that's bad? Because I'm constantly saying, no, come on, that's good. What do you mean? (laughs) And so I first said to you, hey, what about Freddy Got Fingered? That movie is a huge favorite of mine. But of course, you and I have very similar vibes. You've already done it. So I shot you a list. And on this list was Boar from 2017, Grizzly Mm -hmm. from 1976, Day of the Animals, the sequel, and Return of the Swamp Thing from 1989. (laughs) And, oh, also Misfits of Science from 1985, which might be a movie based on a TV show. I honestly don't remember which came first. But anybody who likes bad movies, you got to check out Misfits of Science. Courtney Cox is in it. Might be her first movie like her second movie doesn't matter it's terrible and great (laughs) and and you said hey return to the swamp thing the reason i put that on and not the first swamp thing which was written and directed by wes craven and Mm -hmm. what the music was composed by the same guy who did the music for friday the 13th and god you can tell when you watch the movie and Adrian Barbeau is and Ray Weiss are fucking in it. That movie is a lot of things. It's not nearly as entertaining as Return of the Swamp Thing. Because I watched them both like in the same week on Tubi. Uh, Nick, if I'm not mistaken, we are brought to you tonight by Tubi. Well, maybe one day in the future. (laughs) We should be, man. (laughs) It seems like everybody likes Tubi. But, you know, they're free, so I don't know how much sponsorship money they have to go around. But if you're looking for stuff to watch, and you, you know, you've cut the cable at this point, cut the cord. You're trying to get away from streaming services that are upcharging you all of a sudden. You know, you could just watch Tubi all the time. Like, there's so many different interesting things that are on Tubi that I don't think you would ever get bored in terms of variety. Like there's there's good classic stuff. There's crazy stuff. There's weird indie stuff. There's all kinds of stuff on Tubi. They have a great selection. Sponsor us, guys. But in the meantime, just check out Tubi if you haven't. It's a good it's a good service. And when you're there, watch Return of the Swamp Thing. You do not (laughs) even need to watch the first one. It doesn't even matter. They tell you everything you need to know. 
Uh, this is Jim Wynerski, who fucking also directed Chopping Mall. So it has mm. this very goofy, irreverent attitude. The design of the Swamp Thing costume and uh, Dick Durock in the costume looks good. Like, this is 1989. And this guy looks fantastic the way it's lit, the way it's shot. It looks like fucking Swamp Thing walked right out of the pages and onto the screen. But the movie, the movie is just goofy. It's super goofy. The music is not Harry Manfredini. It's it's like uh, it's like the A team. Yeah. It has that <laughs> attitude. Swamp Thing is just punching everybody. He's punching constantly. He's throwing grenades. The henchmen wear these orange jumpsuits that are sleeveless. It's ludicrous. The However, matching sleeveless rompers. Gotta love yeah. it. <laughs> However, in a jungle setting, this is a good uniform that stands out in contrast against the uh, uh, the background and the vegetation. If you were making a comic book, these are some of the color choices you would make. It's super goofy. Heather Locklear is the lead. She is, she absolutely understands what kind of a movie she's in. And the dialogue is so ridiculous, but everybody just rolls with it. Uh, There's a moment in the movie where Swamp Thing has just appeared to her and he's done some massive violence on some bad dudes, but she doesn't know who or what this thing is. And he says something to the effect of, just trust me. And she goes, okay. <laughs> and, and when that happened, I remember going, boom, that is a microcosm for the whole movie. It's just like, hey, audience, just go with it. Okay. And if you do, you'll have a great time. So, yeah, that's that's why I think this one over Swamp Thing from 82. Uh, because this one is just a wackadoodle, low-budget, not taking itself remotely seriously comic book movie from the late 80s that's embracing all of its comic bookiness. Yeah, and there's a lot of like panels that are showcased, I think, during the opening credits, right? So, you know, there's a tendency nowadays with comic book films to sort of leave the the, the goofy, like the hyper-colorized versions of their past behind and move on to something that's grittier more realistic and you know we did dark man for september and i think that was a really good combination of styles of bringing something that is uh a larger than life idea and doing it in a way that really pays homage to comics of the past and still sort of dialing it in for the era that it's taking place in. And I don't feel too uh, dissimilar after having watched this. It embraces its comic book roots and still does so in a way that fits a lot of the 80s action mold that was taking place at the time. Because this was, what, 89? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels like a, a Roger Corman movie. It feels kind of like a canon film. You know, I I think the comparison to Masters of the Universe is pretty apt because the creature design, the 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 effects makeup that they do in this movie is legit and it's all over the place. There's this whole sequence where we see Dr. Arcane's 
laboratory where he's been doing these genetic experiments there's an actual elephant man but he doesn't look like the <laughs> elephant man he looks like an elephant man uh there's a dude who's like half man half wasp there's a whole bunch of this sort of shit and it's just fun because that's where the money went uh, i didn't take the time to write down who the effects people were on this but i think they did a magnificent job I I will say it too many times in this episode. This movie is fun. It is. And uh, it was looks like Neil Martz was the Swamp Thing makeup creator. And that's the only one that's listed specifically. But uh, Vicky Grafe did costume design as well. And, you know, we get this this bog monster who he has to look a certain way and you know i had just done Ernest scared stupid and we had sort of remarked about how well done the effects were even though the tone of the movie doesn't necessarily line up with the quality of the makeup and effects work so i think this is a probably a similar vibe in that way and that you get like really good classic horror style designs and makeup and effects work, but it's put into a package that is a lot more fun, a lot more light, nothing that's really meant to scare you. But there's a couple moments where they have the kids in there and you get a uh, leech man or leechman. I don't know. They don't ever say it out loud. So I was only seeing it uh, in the subtitles and I wasn't I, quite I think, sure. <laughs> I think it is leech man. I would think so. I mean, it's a I'm superhero. pretty sure <laughs> it's John Leachman. He just happened to become a leech. Uh, yeah. But yeah, like we, we don't hold it against him. The design of his like hooded face and like the breathing apparatus that he's got like a trunk on his face. All that is done really remarkably well. Yeah. And I, I think it speaks to something that I'm pretty sure you guys mentioned in your Ernest Scared Stupid episode that there's an interesting combination of child focused family friendly mm -hmm. fair that can still include these dark frightening horrific visual elements and it makes for a wonderful soup that becomes appropriate for all ages but is respectful enough of its audience it's daring enough to take its audience to some more chilling places uh, your goosebumps your are you afraid of the dark yeah and and i think that this also kind of falls into a similar category yeah and uh, sort of like a precursor too to a lot of that stuff in the 90s on nickelodeon uh sort of melding the influences that you know the horror business had had in the industry at that point and realizing that there is a, a younger audience that like is very drawn to a lot of the material, but you have to tone it down to a certain degree. And it's kind of interesting that this movie was the first comic book movie to get a PG 13 rating because it still strikes me as mostly a PG movie. So I'm curious, like what made it PG 13? Well, maybe we'll get to that later. Cause there is like a weird swamp sex <laughs> moment in this film, but I want to ask you too, because, you know, you had mentioned it a little bit before we started recording, but like, what is your relationship 
to this film? Was it something that you saw as a young kid? Was this something that you came across later in life? Yeah, I don't have a huge history with this movie. I saw it for the first time maybe last year because both Swamp Thing from 82 and this one were streaming for free on Tubi. And I am a big Swamp Thing fan. And I kind of, I had a weekend and I was like, you know, fuck it. I've, I've always been curious about this Wes Craven Swamp Thing. Let me, let me take the dive. And I fucking jumped in and I watched it and immediately return of the Swamp Thing. Do you want to watch that? And I was like, yes, Tubi, I do. I didn't <laughs> even know that existed. Let's do it. And so I jumped into that one almost immediately. And it struck me how much more comic booky it was, how much more confident it was, how much more fun it was, how wacky it was. It, it felt like a very irreverent, uh, tongue-in-cheek take to the audience, you know, to the camera almost, as if to say, yeah, go ahead, get Ben out of shape, bitch. It's Swamp Thing. We're doing what we want. Come along and have fun or be a stick in the mud and go fuck yourself. It's like, come on. And I love that. I just love that kind of thing. And I'm such a sucker for a good looking Swamp Thing. And this costume, especially for the budget and the time period, was very impressive to me. And so all of that together made me say, this was way more fun and way better than Return of the Swamp Thing from 1989 had any right to be. And so it's like that combined with my love of the comics and the character uh, kind of elevates it to a place in my, my brain space that I think the movie doesn't deserve to be at with a normal human being. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, that's probably why the ratings are as low as they are. But I, I guess what was your relationship to the comics? I mean, I imagine you're close to my age, at least probably a child of the 80s. So, yes, uh, I was born in 87. OK. Uh, and so as I was coming up there, there was a Swamp Thing cartoon. Mm -hmm. And and folks, you can YouTube that shit <laughs> if you want. The the opening to the Swamp Thing cartoon literally uses a sound alike from wild thing so instead <laughs> of wild thing you make my heart sing it's swamp thing <laughs> oh my god it's ridiculous so he was kind of in the zeitgeist i thought the the character design was really cool i was into you know comics as a as a kid and batman and the like and then as I got older and really started like reading comics with more focus, I got turned on to Saga of the Swamp Thing, which was the Alan Moore run on the character from like 1984 through 1987. But this is sort of the most renowned section of comics for the character because of everything Alan Moore did with the character. And I cannot recommend these comics enough to people. It's fascinating because as you see in the movie, he's always referred to as Alec because he was Alec Holland as a man and then big explosion, you know, swamp uh, uh, chemicals and, and <laughs> mutagens and shit. And the next thing you know, boom, it's swamp thing. But he still remembers being Alec Holland, he identifies as Alec Holland who had this thing happen to him and now he's Swamp Hulk. 
and and people call him Alec, you know, throughout the whole movie, uh, Heather Locklear is calling him Alec. The big thing Alan Moore did with the character that I thought was fascinating right off the bat is Swamp Thing comes to terms with the fact that he is not Alec Holland. He was Alec Holland. He was killed. And his body fused with the consciousness within the swamp and within all the chemicals and the experiments they had been doing. And something new was birthed. And that new thing is Swamp Thing. And he remembers Alec Holland's life. And he spent a time thinking that he was still Alec Holland. But he comes to terms with the fact that that's actually not true. He's not that guy anymore. He's something different. And then as the as the comic goes on, he finds out that he is actually the natural evolution in a planned out uh, cycle that is run by the green and this group called the Parliament of Trees. And it's just I'm not even joking. It's just <laughs> like the Matrix when Neo finds out that he's like the sixth iteration of the one and that this has already happened. And that it's just a natural cycle. Swamp Thing is a natural cycle. Uh, he's connected to all things living on the planet, particularly through plant life. And that is called the green. And it's that hippy dippy thing about how everything alive is connected. And he is the avatar of the green. For his time alive, he defends that. And there were avatars of the green before him. And there will be avatars of the green after him. And when he's done being the avatar of the green, he'll descend down into the parliament of trees, which is like this old ass council who remember like they collectively remember back to a time before the earth was even earth. Because that's like the retirement home for the avatar of the green, <laughs> like uh, all of this stuff. I, I apologize if I sound like a dude on a street corner with a sign, but like <laughs> all of this stuff. It, is not only so beautifully rendered, it's so artfully rendered in these comics. We have a comic book character who is a hero and he's powerful as fuck. He's more powerful than Batman. And, and I love Batman. And what we see time and again is in a Swamp Thing story, he comes up against some violent, awful force. He tries to beat it down. He gets his ass kicked a little bit. He realizes that he cannot defeat it that way. And he finds a way to understand his foe. He finds a way to learn why they are doing what they are doing. And then he finds a way to communicate to them in a way that helps expand their mind and make them realize that what they're doing is counterproductive to their goals. And they're just creating violence and destruction and they make the choice to stop. Like that's the cycle. That's sort of the, um, what is it with a video game pattern that you want? Uh, that, that's, that's your basic cycle of a Swamp Thing comic in these Alan Moore runs. And that for me was so huge and beautiful that a, a, a mighty strong hero would win the day through aggressive empathy. Yeah, it's a very cool idea and attractive at the time as well when, you know, most heroes typically smash things. And, you know, rightfully so. You're you're reading a comic book. You want to see some things get smashed. 
but there is this idea of sort of transcendental consciousness that is very interesting. It's very appealing to me personally. It's stuff that I liked in it doesn't get explored as deeply, but in stuff like Chappie or uh, I want to say Altered Carbon was the show on Netflix where essentially like your consciousness gets just uploaded into new bodies. But at some point, like there's the whole ship of Theseus, uh, the philosophical argument about like at what point does the ship no longer be the ship or is it still the ship when you're replacing all these little parts one by one? And so the further you get down the line, like you mentioned with Swamp Thing, he's not Alec anymore. He remembers being Alec. He remembers who Alec was and he has a connection to the past because of that. But he his active consciousness is no longer the same person that it was in the past. And I really like that idea. And I would like to see more things expand on sort of like the cost of that as you go further and further down the line. And so it's kind of sad that Altered Carbon only got two seasons worth, but I, I understand there's there's some animated films, I think, that also came out uh, under that brand as well that I've yet to check out, but are on my watch list. But it's crazy to hear that Swamp Thing mostly wins with what reverse psychology in the, in the end uh in a way yeah in a way it's it's just yeah it's about understanding and uh and and expansion now like there's there's more to it there's all this high drama and and mm -hmm. romance and he like has to descend into the nether realm but time and time again if you want to really break it down to your basic bitch gameplay loop of Swamp Thing in these Alan Moore comics. That's really what it is. It's aggressive empathy winning the day after trying and failing with brute force. And it's it's funny to me that that's what got me into the comics and the character. And then you have this movie where, again, yeah. he is punching everyone <laughs> and everything. He is kicking doors down. He's throwing grenades. He is stuffing grenades down people's pants. He's driving a Jeep while explosions <laughs> happen all around him. And you know what? I don't fucking care. It's great. It's fun. It's just such a good time. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, is that this movie is very much the opposite of all the things that you described about Swamp Thing, yet you're able to still love it all the same. And that's great, because, you know, it's hard to... Well, one, it's hard to really, like, adapt something that is as thoughtful and measured as the storyline that you're describing from the comics and also like a lot more expensive to kind of tell that story whereas like this is a sequel you're probably getting your budget trimmed a little bit because Wes Craven is not directing this so you're already like putting this movie sort of up against the wall in terms of like how it's going to start from a little bit further back when trying to succeed and if you really tried to make it this like heady, super intellectual idea, you're not going to probably appeal to a large part of the crowd that enjoyed the first movie. It would be appealing to the people that read those 80s comics, but that's not even, I don't think, where the first movie started from so much. Oh, yeah. No, it's interesting when you really. You pick out the little details in the movie that do echo to the comics. You know, they mention that Arcane, he's working his lab, it's on that plantation, right? Mm -hmm. And that there was like a massive slave uprising and that people said it was haunted. 
that's kind of neat that they gave a little lip service to that because there's a whole book or two in the middle of the Alan Moore Swamp Thing run where we are just dealing with the ghosts of tortured slaves from like the antebellum South on this plantation where like this modern day movie is being shot, but the ghosts are starting to influence the actors and, and it's starting to create actual like violence and danger. And they kind of have to exercise the wrongs of the past to help put the ghosts to rest. And it's like this whole, you know, couple, a uh, couple of book run in the middle of this whole swamp thing. And, and I'm not even sure what swamp thing does. I think he's just kind of there while this is all going down. And so, but in the movie, there's just a little bit of lip service given to the fact that, Oh yes, there was a uh, slave uprising and uh, uh, a spit spot moving on. It does lend itself to one of the weirdest moments of Heather Locklear's dialogue where Swamp Thing explains to her, like, this was a former plantation work by slaves. You know, their their spirits are troubled. And she's like, well, I can't imagine anybody being upset living in a place as beautiful as this. And it's like, whoa, lady, slavery. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> drop, drop the ball on that one. <laughs> the whole well, no, the, the whole the character. It's just constantly moments like that, you know. She spends like her whole opening scene talking to a bunch of plants mm-hmm. and like, you know, spraying them because, you know, it's like, hey, ha, ha, you know, people talk to plants and people like plants more than people. <laughs> She's a vegetarian. It's the 80s. Ha ha ha. And <laughs> the whole time, though, she's talking to like her only coworker who is just watching TV and eating soup out of a can <laughs> and just not saying a word. and. I I love it because like it it feels like the movie knows what it's doing pretty much every step of the way. And so like she's just eating the soup and kind of looking at this wacky ass blonde lady talking to her fucking plants. Yeah, I think we've all had those moments where it's like we know that like we have to indulge this person to a certain degree. And in defense of her coworker, how does she even know that she's being talked to because she's having conversations with the plants, like all in one sort of stream of consciousness moment. So it's like, Oh, there's a, what's her face. She's just talking to the plants again. I'm going to continue to watch my daytime TV and eat this soup. She gives her that. She gives that laundry list of things. The plants need, you know, make sure you keep (laughs) the TV on, make sure the lights are on water them at this time of day, that time of day. She even has like their favorite uh, TV show, like, oh, the plants respond better to this particular type of TV. So make sure you leave it on that channel when you lock up for the day. Uh, but and then they make a TJ Hooker reference because Heather Locklear was on TJ Hooker. Ah, there's a joke. There's a reference that's not going to age like milk. People will know what that <laughs> means in five years. Yeah, there's a couple of those that they did uh, for her specifically, but her whole character introduction. She like she bursts in and she's complaining about her therapist and her transcendental therapy like being a scam and that she drove all the way to Malibu for it and that they didn't validate her parking in Malibu. I'm like, wow, they're really like bending over backwards to be like L.A. is this kind of place. And I'm like, well, they're not wrong, but they definitely like made sure to get that in there very early in her character development. You would think the people who made this were low budget filmmakers in Hollywood. It's. It's great, though. I, I appreciated it as an Angelino. So I will say that they did a good job with it. But I think now's a good time. Let's take a look back at the trailer, because now that this movie is 
what, 34, 35 years old? We're going to have a very different take on it. And it's not a movie that I was aware of when it was uh, being billed. So I've never even seen this trailer before. Before we get to the trailer, it's time for a quick word from our sponsor. It might be cooling down around the holiday season, but everyone has experienced swamp ass at one point or another, and we all know how much that sucks. Fortunately, you don't have to worry about that kind of embarrassment and discomfort anymore thanks to Mighty Moss Wet Wipes. Mighty Moss is all-natural, completely vegan-friendly, and made from 100% organic plant materials. The locally sourced pond cypress, black gum, red maple, wax myrtle, and buttonwood from the swamps of Louisiana are used to humidity, so they're super absorbent and have built-in cooling properties to stop swamp ass dead in his tracks. Whether you're wandering around the swamps in matching sleeveless rompers with your buddies, actively fighting crime in the bog, or just attending a formal dinner party at a fancy colonial estate, it's easy to work up a lather. So show everyone that you're the real hero of every southern social event by packing Mighty Moss wet wipes. And now, back to the show. All right, let's go. Speaking of leech man. The big green guy is back. They call yeah, he me is. Swamp Thing. You're a plant, aren't you? <laughs> I'm gonna ask you, why is there lightning coming out of those weapons that they're wielding? And why does Leashman explode when he jumps in the water? Okay, you're asking a lot of questions. Right? I've got answers for all of them, but we've got it one at a time here. The return of Swamp Thing. About time. Get back, Swamp Thing. We need you. This is a good shot with that grenade, huh? Starring Louis Jordan. Damn right it the is. Devil? They did spend a lot of their uh, budget on the pyrotechnics for this film. I appreciate all the real explosions in this, and yeah, I don't too. care how that sounds because they look great. I mean, you they do. And swamp thing. Thumbs up, baby. The kind of love you want. I'm a plant. I'm a vegetarian. That was that was like that bewitched gag with Will Ferrell and uh, Nicole Kidman. I'm a witch. It's okay. I'm a Clippers fan. He's turning over a new leaf for love. He's turning over a new leaf for love. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that they wanted to like make this a love story and just be confident that like this is the direction we're going. We're going to take like a hot blonde from LA. We're going to send her down to the swamp in Georgia. And yep. she's going to fall in love with a bog monster, and she's not even going to think twice about it. You know, you know, he says, this will never work. I'm a plant. She says, it's okay. I'm a vegetarian. In <laughs> the book, uh, there is a, I mean, her hair is white. I mean, it's like, it's like storm white. Mm. Uh, Abigail Arcane and... Or, well, Abigail Cable, that's a whole thing. They do fall in love. And they refer to each other as a husband and wife. And there are a lot of rich, beautiful stories about the two of them. Uh, This is not a good faith (laughs) representation of that. But it fits with the tone of the movie. So I kind of just don't care. 
Because, yeah, it's ludicrous. And, you know, we saw our great little little rascal rejects at the beginning mm-hmm. of the trailer. We didn't even talk about them. I love these little bastards. We meet these two kids. They're dumping out a box of porn because back in yep. the day, you had to have a parent who had a collection that they thought was hidden well, and you had to pull it out when they were gone and your friends were over. I mean, if we got any Gen Z listeners right now, you have no <laughs> Blue, how good you've got it. Not because we went to war, but because we didn't have internet porn. Okay. You used to have to fight for your porno in magazines. You had to, you had to get somebody's stash. <laughs> so but yeah, they, they bust out like the regular soda. They turn on some MTV and they're like, porno time. It's adorable. It's so good the way it's shot because it's as if, you know, it's it's as if they're, 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 just having the night of their lives, like, yeah, man, we're going to do it up right. And it's like when you're that age to have that much porn at your fingertips and no parents around. Yeah, you feel like you're on top of the world. Yeah, it certainly also sets the tone of the movie like decidedly younger than I would say that the first one was. But the first one is also PG. So maybe it's like the little things like that that pushed this up to a PG-13, but this one still feels more aimed at kids than the original. It definitely was, you know, like after this movie, we had the TV show with the same actor playing Swamp Thing. There was the Swamp Mm -hmm. Thing cartoon. You know, I honestly, especially as I was watching this, it reminded me of like, if RoboCop was the the TV Incredible Hulk, you know, with Lou Ferrigno. It's like if you put those two together and made it a uh, made it a big green green monster in the swamp. That's kind of what you got here. It's just he's punching people, he's punching people, he's throwing grenades, there's explosions, the bad guys are trying to do a thing. There's a girl and we want to protect the girl, the bad guys want to kidnap the girl for reasons. We got to save the girl and in the process more punching and explosions and we did it. <laughs> And are you still a man? Are you a monster? It doesn't matter. I'm here to do good. And maybe I'm both like, seriously, the, the parallels to RoboCop are ridiculous. Yeah. All the way down to sort of like the death, the resurrection, sort of like what that means to who you are as a hero as well. And we should at least acknowledge just how much changed over the course of the 80s because a pg rating in 1982 is not the same as a pg rating in 1989 there was a seven-year gap between these movies and the opening credits alone are enough to give you an idea of the tone we're going yeah. with you know you got freaking ccr giving us born out of you <laughs> and we're seeing all those gorgeous shots of the actual comics. And then, you know, having the kids be regular characters that keep reoccurring. Now, I know we had a kid in the first one, but that was a little bit different. You know what I mean? That kid was almost like an adult in a in a kid package. You know what I mean? Yeah. And in, in this case, it seems to almost like toe the line of wanting to get into the sort of like Corey Feldman, Corey Haim kid universe type of stuff the the goonies type of stuff there's a lot of that stuff that was also popular during the 80s where 
it seems like just you're broadening your horizons by including some kids that will, you know, provide some punchlines. They'll be involved in the story. I mean, they get an end credit scene, which I was trying to think, like, was there an end credit scene in any comic book movie before this? Not that there's a ton of comic book movies that came out before this, but very interesting to see that they sort of set that tone. And rather than do some kind of Easter egg for the future films or connected to the TV show or the cartoon that's coming out. It's like, no, it's these two kids arguing about uh, what was it? The cost of developing the film, something like that. Yeah. I can't remember. They were arguing about like how much they're going to sell the story for and what they're going to do with the money. You know, like I'm going to get this car. No, I want this car. You get your own car and I'll get my car. Yeah. They're like slightly older versions of, did I say virgins? Virgins. <laughs> they're probably virgins as well. <laughs> they're definitely virgins. No, they're slightly older versions of the little rascals. Yeah. Or uh, for that matter, the kids from Monster Squad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it it cracks me up. These little fuckers keep showing up throughout this movie, especially, you know, the the one kid, you know. With his wheezy kind of accent, and he's all worried about his dad. When shit cracks off in like every trailer home in that fucking little park just explodes, it's just, oh, that one blew up, then that one blew up, then that one blew up. And it looks fantastic. Yeah, I was like, this swamp gas must be filled with like a lot of methane or something because everything seems incredibly flammable in this area dangerous it's a dangerous area it's a rough place for kids to grow up you know that's why the the one of the pair he when you see him in that first scene he's got that sleeveless shirt on he's jacked yeah the, the <laughs> kid who like has all the porn he's i was like whoa who is this kid he's been hitting the gym he needs to be going to sunday school uh well i had asked you some questions during that trailer too and you know uh, one of them was about the sudden appearance of lightning or at least at the at the very least electricity in these random weapons that are picked up by right. leech man and swamp thing as they get into like a sort of impromptu sword fight with giant metal rods but i don't remember lightning striking either of them yeah so let's you know let's let's remember that in the original swamp thing from 82 we don't get a monster versus monster fight until like the end of the movie yeah. After uh, uh, Dr. Arcane has injected himself with serum and turned himself into a creepy, weird monster with eyes that don't move or change in any way, <laughs> which was kind of distracting and sad, but everything else was cool. So I went with it. This movie says, we're not going to do that. We're going to get you into some monster versus monster action right off the bat, homie. And if they're going to be whacking metal against each other, I mean, they're not chainsaws. It's not Mandy with Nicolas Cage. We've just got the metal and the rain. We need to add a little oomph to this. So we've got our ridiculous add-on lightning animation effects that are just so fucking 80s. And uh, yeah, it adds a lot of drama to the proceedings. And I love it. It looks great. It's ridiculous. It's silly. It helps add to the tone. You know, it does. Let, and it lets the audience know what they're in for. <laughs> and it certainly helps uh, as a reason for why the propane tank exploded when it was hit by this electrified metal rod. And then that's the catalyst for the whole neighborhood exploding. 
And Leech Man also explodes at the end of this sequence. I mean, he he takes like a propane explosion at point blank range. And I love that when they cut to the wide shot, there's like a dummy that's standing right there outside the trailer as it explodes. And so I'm like, okay, he just dies. But no, he's on fire after that. Then he runs to the swamp to extinguish himself. And as he hits the surface of the water, he explodes. Wouldn't you know it? Leech Man. uh, (laughs) There's a chemical reaction when he meets with water. We didn't realize that. And sadly, we found out. I hope someone was there taking notes. Isn't there a book that they're trying to get their hands on the whole goddamn time? Or is that the first movie? See, Nick, I watched way too much Swamp Thing in the last (laughs) 24 hours. And now I don't remember what happened in what movie. In this one, they're not looking for a book. The villain who is uh, Louis Jordan. He Louis is, Jordan. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's looking for a DNA sample from both Heather Locklear and Swamp Thing so that he can make the perfect like Swamp Baby. Well, he, he needs to save himself, right? Because he was dead at the end of the first Correct. one. But they brought him back through science mumbo jumbo. However, he's not permanently here. His body will start to deteriorate and they need they for some reason, her mom was like the perfect genetic specimen, but she's dead now. So they need her because she's the closest thing. And also Swamp Thing. I have to be honest, I wasn't paying 100 percent attention throughout (laughs) the whole movie, but there were a few aspects of the plot where I was like, what? Whatever. Well, <laughs> since, since you're like a fan of the comics and stuff, I'm I'm curious, like, is there a limitation on how Swamp Thing is envisioned in terms of his, let's call him superpowers? I mean, he's obviously strong. We see that yeah. in this, he's very resistant to gunfire. I think... He even gets grenaded at some point and becomes like soup and then is able to reconstitute after that. This is another thing in this movie that does connect to the comic, which makes a guy like me go, oh, that's neat that they put that in there. He has to learn how to do this, but he does learn that he's able to put himself back together again after being blown apart like the fucking T-1000. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is also able, again, after he learns how to do this, Daniel-san must, you know, must learn with Mr. Miyagi before he can fucking fight Cobra Kai matches. He also learns how to essentially teleport to the other side of the planet if if he wants, mm. or the other side of the state using the soil. He can, like, fucking... Uh, Zoop himself into the ground beneath <laughs> and then grow back out where he wants to reconstitute. Uh, there's a there's a comic where he gets killed and it's really scary and sad and Abigail grieves for him, but then finds this tiny little grain plant that is clearly swamp thing and she puts it in a pot and she nurses it and it slowly grows back to him. And he kind of it's the first time he's had to regenerate from nothing. And he's like, wow, that was really fucked up. But now that I've done it, I know I can do it again. You know, he can grow himself. He can communicate with other plants. He you know, there's a whole comic where Abigail is put in jail 
in Gotham City for reasons that I don't need to go into. <laughs> and Swamp Thing essentially takes the whole city hostage. He influences the plant life throughout all of Gotham City to just take over. It grows so much that traffic is at a standstill. Buildings can't be entered. And he just keeps doing and like like society cannot function because there is so much plant life just taking over this huge city. And they essentially have to let her out of jail and give her back to him and admit that they locked her up for stupid reasons. So, yeah, uh, his his abilities are pretty substantial. I mean, he's got godlike powers, you might say. But yeah. as a character, he he does have to learn how to use those. And I don't know if you're familiar with this guy or not, but a character that is instrumental in helping him learn the ways of the green is uh, Constantine. Oh, wow. Who uh, there's a lot of crossover. There's sort they're sort of like mismatched buddy cops in a handful of comics. Uh, Swamp Thing and Constantine. And for all of my UK friends, I know it's Constantine, but I'm American. Nick is American. <laughs> if I said Constantine, he wouldn't know who I meant. But I know it's John Constantine. I know. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that too. I think there is an animated DC film where Constantine is the star and Swamp Thing has a sizable role in that movie. Yes. Like a couple years ago. Yes. Uh, I'm embarrassed. I've watched it several times and I can't think of the title right now. It's like called Dark Universe or some damn thing. Yeah, it's pretty close to that. Uh, But yeah, and the buddy copping, if you will, of those two are, it's always lovely. It's always fantastic. Uh, There's also a, a very romantic, dramatic storyline where uh, John impregnates Abigail, making her think that he's Swamp Thing and like that it's a way for them to have a human baby together. Uh, And it's all part of this bigger plot where it's like, look, there was no other way. There's a big cosmic doom coming down the pike. That's the thing. That's the thing with the Hellblazer series and, and Constantine, Constantine. With his gameplay loop is he's always facing off against these frightening demons and he always has to enlist the help of other humans who often end up getting killed in the process. And he knows they're going to get killed in the process, but he sort of has to charm them into helping him and making them think they'll survive because it's the only way. And if they don't defeat this demon, the whole fucking planet is going to get killed. Like John's thing is that he's not only the survivor, he's the asshole who talked the sacrifice Mm -hmm. into sacrificing themselves. And he lives with that, with his blonde hair and his cigarettes and his constant (laughs) sex with everybody. (laughs) Fucking character. You got to fill that void some way, John. (laughs) You got to do it with your cool coat. All right. I'm sorry. We got to get back to Swamp Thing. <laughs> well, on the topic of Swamp Thing, you yes. know, we one of the panels that they showed in the beginning credits is, I think, of that Gotham takeover. And it's a you see Swamp Thing sort of just swallowed Arkham Asylum at that point. And so you can barely make out that it says Arkham there. But I'm curious, like as a reader of the comics, 
is Swamp Thing constantly busy? Because as I'm watching this, I'm like, there's a lot of crime for him to be dealing with in this swamp area. It's like as soon as Leech Man pops up, Swamp Thing's there. Leech Man sighting again, Swamp Thing's there. Bad guys with guns, Swamp Thing's there. So is he constantly like just fighting crime in the bog or is he is he more like on loan to other cities to help with their issues uh you know what it's actually neither he's generally in the swamp he's generally in the bog occasionally john will show up and be like yo there's a thing you've got to do over here it's it's planetary next level shit bro you got to do it let's go but other than that, he's in the swamps, not of Georgia, as I remember, but Louisiana. And yes, Louisiana. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, no, because no, I think it was it was filmed in Georgia. I think so. Uh, at any rate, he's dealing with his own existential journey. He's dealing with weird gothic horror that comes about because of the sort of generational trauma that has sort of instilled itself into the land in this place, you know, in the deep South and the swamps and occasionally dealing with interdimensional otherworldly, like hell dimension shit that will have an effect on the earth. And then also occasionally dealing with, uh, you know, kind of personal enemies, Matt Cable, uh, you know, Arcane, um, Woodrew. So, yeah, no, because he definitely has time to just sort of contemplate his existence, and we take that journey with him as well. So, yeah, the movie is like there's this one dude causing all sorts of crazy shit, and it's just happening constantly. That's good for a movie. Eh, that's not really reflective of of how the comics are. Yeah, and especially for sort of an an eight, not just an 80s movie, but an 80s superhero movie. Like, you need a particular type of villain and you need good hench people. Uh, and we get some oh good ones God. in yeah. this movie. Yeah, we do. Who, who are these? Can you remind me of these actors? Because his top two hench people are just terrible, but well, they are so <laughs> great in the ways in which they are terrible. We get uh, Joey Seagal is Mr. Gunn, who looks like like they imagined like a Cajun pirate. You know, he's got the he's got the particular hat. He's also wearing the romper, but I think his romper comes with sleeves that are rolled up part way. I'm so glad you <laughs> mentioned that because I was totally going to say he, he is distinguished because he's got the beret and he's got sleeves. He's the leader. <laughs> And then Miss Poinsettia, right? Uh, yes, she is. I think she's one of the like scientists because that's like Gunn's girlfriend or his his partner there. But then we also get Sarah Douglas, who was Ursa from the Donner Superman films. So we get to have her as she's Arcane's woman in this case. So she's like sort of his right hand in that. She's a little evil. She's also a scientist. She's helping with the restoration process. And then you've got like more of the underlings that have the guns and go out and actually like do the fighting. This is also where this movie reminds me of Superman three. It, you know, with Richard Pryor. Yeah. 
this movie is wacky in very similar ways, and I enjoy this movie in the same way that I enjoy Superman 3. Uh, who Do you have the cast in front of you? Who is it yeah. that plays Miss Poinsettia? Because that that's Monique Gabriel. Monique Gabriel is ridiculous. This woman is a treasure. She's been in a few of Wynerski's movies. She was in, what was it, like Death Stalker 2 or some yep. damn thing. And uh, what was it? Evil Tune or Dead Tune, something like that. It looks like she was in, at least from what I'm seeing listed here, aside from Death Stalker 2, it was a lot of like late night Skinamax type movies like Emmanuel 5, Silk 2, Planet of the Erotic Ape. Yeah, look, we're not going to besmirch this good woman's name because when she is on screen acting in a scene, her eyebrows do like 90% of the work and you just can't look away. Expressive eyebrows go a long way. Oh, my actual goodness. I It's just a joy. It's a joy. And her and Gunn end up in this one scene in particular that it's, I mean, it's a, a Jaws knockoff or a Jaws parody scene almost where the two of them are comparing battle scars, right? And it seems like they're very, like, contentious between the two of them, but it's, like, the way that they flirt as a pair. Yeah. Have you ever seen Lethal Weapon 3? Yeah, I have. You remember that scene? That was mm-hmm. like the same, it was like the same thing, but done well. Whereas, yeah. you know, here it's the same idea. Like, just like you were saying, it's the Jaws thing where they're comparing scars. But whereas those guys were realizing, ah, oh, this guy's all right. We're going to be pals. In this situation, it's like, ooh, you're all right. I want to have some sex with you. Again, not like there's a giant bog monster on the way to fuck everything up for you guys, but you know what? We get example after example of how these are the worst hench people ever. They are terrible. Yeah. Uh, you know, Arcane, maybe he's good at like genetic manipulation and splicing stuff together, making abominations. He's not good at hiring security. Indeed. He, I think he cracks a joke about that as well that, like, oh, yeah. So like so much so much for security. And it is this thing of I don't know if it's like become a trope at this point, but we talked about it when we did Superman for Film Club and that like Lex is a genius or at least we're being told that he's a genius and he's formidable enough to be a thorn in Superman's side intellectually. And we get Lex surrounding himself with the Otis character like you know, maybe maybe it's a way of sh- like showing that this guy is a genius and that the average criminal is kind of just like a bumbling buffoon. And it does take a, a certain level of evil genius to get to that next level to become like a super villain. Well, the other thing, and it's very tropey, but I think it was done well with Gene Hackman. I think it applies to Lex Luthor. And I think. It applies to this version of Arcane. These genius villains also have an ego. Yes. And their arrogance is a flaw. And I believe it is that arrogance and ego that leads them to get people next to them that are just dipshit yes men who make them feel even smarter by sheer comparison. There's an old saying. If you're dumb, surround yourself with smart people. If you're smart, 
Surround yourself with smart people who disagree with you. But if you're too egotistical to surround yourself with smart people that disagree with you, you're just going to surround yourself with dipshits. And they're always going to agree and they're never going to push you to consider your options. Oh my goodness, it brings me back to that great moment in the animated flick, Superman, Batman, Public Enemies, where uh, Lex Luthor has the one person in his in his scope, Amanda Waller, the only one who's willing to say, motherfucker, you're being stupid right now. You need to think about this. And uh, and and he, <laughs> he plants an unwanted kiss on her and, and just dismisses her out of her hand like, yeah, you know what you're talking about. Um. So, yeah, I, that that is something that I think, you know, feeds into that. It's like, why is Arcane surrounded by these dipshits? Although let's give it to Susan Douglas, am I saying that right? Sarah Douglas. Oh, forgive me. He's a scientist Sarah, in this. Sarah Douglas, she's a scientist, and she is looking out for herself, and she eventually fucking double-crosses him because she knew he was going to double-cross her. It's a quadruple <laughs> cross. How very Klingon of them. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, and she also has some very expressive eyebrows as well. But the, I think the thing that you're pointing to in sort of like the villain archetype is narcissism more than anything, because it's like you really could have what you want if you were willing to, you know, entertain some ideas from some other people that might benefit you. You get a little bit of pushback. You maybe get people saying no to you here and there. And if what you want is to run your like swamp plantation and just have the goons go out there and do what you tell them to do then you know this is what you get but you also limit your potential to have what you want and it is kind of like you know a catch-22 for these villains where it's like the thing that really stands in their way half the time is themselves so can i uh just launch us into a thing yeah go for it that's what that's what you're here for well we've mentioned already uh, my love of the comics. We've mentioned mm-hmm. already this interesting sex scene that is implied between Swamp <laughs> Thing and Abigail. So here's the thing. That does actually come out of the comics when he broke a piece of fruit off of himself and gave it to her to, you know, eat and and take a bite of. I, when that very first happened and I saw it for the first time, me on the couch went, Oh my God, are they doing this? (laughs) And then what followed was not really what happens in the comics. And I kind of went, oh, uh, you know what? Okay, fine. I'll take it. In the comics, when that happens, you need to check this out. Like, like look up some Google images of Rite of Spring. Hmm. Womp thing. He, she doesn't say, I want to be with you the way men and women are together. And he says, oh, I have a way to do that. She says, I wish I could see the world the way you do. Because Swamp Thing does have a perception of the world where he sees life in far more complex and in-depth ways than a human person can. And so he grows a fruit off of himself and gives it to her. And she takes a bite. And what follows can only be described as an artistic acid trip. You have to turn the book to read it properly. 
Mm. Like the panels melt, the color warps. We see what she's seeing. And there is this existential exaltation of beauty and and being able to fathom all the gorgeousness that is life pulsating in every single living thing all connected together like she is overcome by that in a very sensual slightly sexual but it's it's higher level than that uh but it is very tactile it's very feeling based uh way and we the reader are taken there too because of all of the liberties that the art takes over the course of those pages before kind of balancing out, shaking out back to normal. Like I said before, it's an artistic acid trip. And they have this moment of kind of cuddling together as she's coming down. And she talks to him about like, my God, is that what it's like for you all the time? I can't even believe it. And he's like, well, yeah, but you're a human. So it's a lot for you. You know, it's not, Mm -hmm. it's different for me, but yes, it is like that. And, And yeah, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the sort of great mother earth spirit. We're talking about something that's so massive. A human being cannot comprehend it for more than a little while. And when you do comprehend it, you're tripping balls. <laughs> um, so it's, it's weird because I don't know. I feel like some whiny purist would be like the movie ruined it. They cheapened it. But I don't know. I was kind of excited to see that they even hinted at it at all. Because it reminded me of that book and it made me want to tell people about that book because that for me was a moment in comics where I was like, holy shit, comics could do this? Yeah, and I think with Swamp Thing, we get a character who's like, even though he's like an, an Earth being, right? He is almost like a cosmic entity in the fact that he is the planet in a way that ego is in Marvel. And you have this like living consciousness of the planet and his representation of that is particularly interesting. And I mean, this is a low budget film was made for like $4 million, you know Uh, it's, it's tone is not capable of grasping the magnitude of what you just described from the comics. So they have to take things uh, a little bit differently. But I think because of him being a, a, like a cosmic entity and having this, this, this sort of like universal consciousness, this shared consciousness with the rest of the plant life and the planet itself and sort of this connection to life. And then we get this moment where what's really happening is like they're sharing a consciousness. And it allows them to connect on a level that is more close to her experience with humans. And like she is able to envision him as a human. And they're just sort of existing within one another's minds. And in fairness, this, given the budget, given the time, you know, given the fact that it's the 80s and what the tone of this movie is, that's not a bad representation of what you mentioned from the comics. I think. For someone like me, who is unaware of this particular moment in comic book history, that I see him just reaching down to his waistline and pulling out this phallic fruit that I don't know where this came from. Why is it shaped like that? I'm like, what is happening here? 
is this really about to happen? Then she takes a bite out of it. They share a little nibble and then they're tripping. And I'm like, okay, now I get it. But very interesting to sort of insert this into a movie that really doesn't do a whole lot of contemplation in terms of like the nature of consciousness and what it means to be connected to another person on this level. It is very much uh, like a Rock'em Sock'em kind of action 80s movie for a lot of it. And it is a bold move to put that in there. And I think I appreciate it more now hearing you talk about like where its origin came from. Because otherwise, it's like, oh, my God, is she really having sex with him? Or are they having mind sex? Or what is happening here? And I think to take a step back and to sort of realize not just the scope of like what's happening for her, but what's happening for him, too, because I'm sure as a character, like there was a point where he becomes this thing that isn't really Alec anymore. And his connection to humanity is severed you know this isn't this isn't a person who likely envisioned themselves ever being able to have even a remotely close relationship to what he's developing with this woman so it's a big moment i think for for both of them in that way and you know in a different type of story where like you really had more time and more money and more character development to build it out it might not be as jarring as it comes across in this and then it's like hey it ends and then there's like a kid screaming and he runs off to go save the kid it's like very abrupt like okay we're done with this now this is too much we're moving on well and they do that kind of cheesy 80s comedy shit with it all the time too like so is there a mrs swamp thing right <laughs> oh no sorry the place is so messy so what do you always do order in it's like <laughs> what, what are we what and, but the thing of it is is that it's so consistent that at a certain point and honestly very early on i'll be honest i just give myself over to it the movie knows what it's doing this is probably a good spot to do some trivia because you seem like a good candidate for it as well. Time for trivia. Oh shit. Uh-oh. Put you on the Let's spot. Let's get Let's All get right. wild. Yeah, no, All I right. looked up a couple of things about a couple of things. <laughs> all right. Well, you'll have a good chance. And this is really it's all just here to give the listeners some context. <laughs> uh all right. So, question number 1. Jim Winorski was given 30 days to shoot the movie, but how many days did it actually take to film? 60. No, he actually did it in 27 days. Ah. That's crazy. You give him a month and he's like, all right, well, I'll come in under budget and we'll do 27 days and we'll that's, get the swamp sex in there. That's how you keep working. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Like that's being efficient and economical behind the camera is a very particular skill that is difficult. And a lot of movies are over budget on both time and money. So to be given a very small budget to have to make it look good and to to get the product that they got for the budget and the time that they were allowed to film. I think he did a remarkable job with what this ended up being. I have to agree. Cause what I keep saying, the movie is fun. It's entertaining. It is. Yeah. It's, it's way more fun than I think what you said. It's got more fun, more energy, more joy in it than it probably has any right to be. And especially coming after like a very different original film. And this isn't something that got latched on and be like, hey, let's try and get Wes Craven back, which they probably did after the first one. But, 
you know, this is seven years down the line. So there's enough breathing room between the original and the sequel to not necessarily feel the need to be like, let's try and do what we did the first time again and just like tweak a few things here and there. It's like this is we're going in a different direction, literally, and we're going to tell a different kind of story with the same character in the same universe. And I like it. I like that more as sort of like a companion film to what the original was rather than just like trying to only exist in a very, you know, narrow sliver of light within the shadow of a pre-existing film. Yeah, I'd have to agree because the first one is, I feel like it's a little bit confused. Uh, I think it's uh, not the best paced movie. I think it's a little repetitive. I think it's a little overly serious. There's just, there's a, a, it's not that the movie doesn't work. It's just that I feel like the sequel, you might say, was a bit of a course correction. And I, for mm-hmm. my taste, it was in the right direction. Yeah, I could, I could see that. We'll go on to question number two. We've got the actor Ace Mask, which is an amazing name first of all, but he plays Dr. Rochelle in this movie. He also played characters of the exact same name in which two other movies. Also were Nursky movies. The son of a bitch. They were indeed. Thinking he can make his connected universe. (laughs) Uh, The titles I do not have. Hit me. One of them is Not of This Earth which I think is another 80s movie, and then Ghoulies uh-huh. 4, which right. I've, I've seen Ghoulies 1 and 2, but not 3 or 4, <laughs> so I think I need to make the jump and start checking all the Ghoulies off the list. I try to watch a new franchise every October. This last year, I did The Prophecy. The oh, first yeah. three have uh, Christopher Walken, mm-hmm. and there's two more after that. Wow. Yeah. You got through all five? I watched all five within the month of October. And let me tell everybody, watch part one and then stop. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I remember the first one. I remember enjoying the first one. And I think first one kicks ass. Yeah. And then I think I saw like some of the second one and it was on cable. And I was just like, eh, this isn't like doing it for me in the way that the first one did. And I never even investigated like three through five. Oh, my God. Just don't. Don't rewatch the first one and consider how much connective tissue there is between that movie and Fallen starring mm-hmm. Denzel Washington. And it'll make you appreciate it even more. Yeah, Fallen's a really good one. You got uh, John Goodman in that one as well. Oh, that movie fucking rips. Yeah, All right, I'm sorry. We, oh, we, no. We're doing trivia. totally fine. Uh, <laughs> question number three, third and final question. Said Swamp Thing is a DC Comics creation. That ran as a standalone series uh, in the 70s and then again in the 80s. But what is the first appearance of Swamp Thing? It's definitely not related to the movie. This is just a Swamp Thing question. EC Comics. House of Amazing Terror. Pretty close. It was House of Secrets, number 92, in July of 1971. And then he got his own original series uh, following that in 1972. And that first series ran uh, for four years from 72 to 76. Courtesy of Len Wein and some other dude. I can't remember the other guy's name. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about Superman a couple of times here. And 
there's like a surprising amount of connective tissue between the two of them as uh, Dick Durek became the first person since Christopher Reeve to reprise the role as a DC Comics hero on film, as well as Sarah Douglas starring in both of the Donner Supermans. Uh, so it's it's kind of weird that I mean, it is a DC movie, but is it before they're doing like DC EU stuff? You know, they're not really like trying to make this all one thoroughly connected universe. This is more of like a snatch and grab. Like, let's see what we can take and turn oh, into a profitable yeah. movie here. Not let's try and have like Swamp Thing versus Superman five years from now. Yeah, no, this is like Corman's Fantastic Four. I mean, like this movie is doing what it can and it's looking to make what it can. And we're looking to move on like you know, superhero movies were not the fucking tentpole industry that they are now. Uh, honestly, I like seeing these kinds of superhero movies a bit more. They're a little less samey and yeah. they had to be more creative in more interesting ways. So that's its own fucking soapbox. Shoot, you look at the Christopher Reeve Superman movies like the if it wasn't for Christopher Reeve kind of pushing for it, the fourth one wouldn't have even happened. And uh, they were diminishing returns all the way down the line on those. <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't until Batman in 89 that we saw something superhero could be as big as Jaws, you know, yeah. taking itself seriously, could be as could be as big as Star Wars taking itself seriously. And so I don't feel like. Return of the Swamp thing is he even trying. I mean, this is like Toxic Avenger. This is like Attack yeah. of the Killer Tomatoes, you know, uh, but with just a bit a bit more on the budgetary side for makeup effects. You know, this is a little killer clowns from outer space attitude. Yeah, well, speaking of Toxic Avenger, that was a title that popped into my head several times while watching this movie and just thinking about it in general. And there is a live action adaptation of toxic avenger that i don't know if it's next year because with all the delays that happened because of the strike i'm not sure what the timing is for anything anymore the but, peter dinklage one right yeah 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 i don't know if it's still slated for like this year early next year i i don't even know at this point but it also prompts the live action new adaptation of swamp thing that is in the works directed by None other than James Mangold, who you were just talking about on your episode on 310 to Yuma. That's right. Uh, I didn't even know James Mangold was doing a Swamp Thing project. That's amazing. Yeah, he signed on. There's a couple other uh, films that he needs to finish before he actually gets to make Swamp Thing. But yeah, I just read that today. So little interesting is... anecdote since I was listening to your show this morning while I was driving around doing errands. And then I come home oh, and I start researching and I see... Hey, how, what are the odds of that? Super freaking duper. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's exciting to hear. Uh, man, do I love James Mangold. I need to do an episode on Copland. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that guy's good. Yeah, I think I think I was listening to probably movie friends and they were talking about Copland being surprisingly good. And I think they were just remarking on being surprised that Stallone could actually like dramatically act and hold his own with like the Harvey Keitel's of the world in a movie. So I think I, I'm pretty sure it was movie friends, but I don't want to shout out. We love you, Seth. We love you, Michelle. <laughs> we do. 
And uh, I don't remember what episode that was. I, you know, now that I'm in the car a lot more and I have to drive a lot more, it's like it just puts them in, puts them in the roulette chamber and we'll see which one pops up. So I don't know which episode I'm listening to most of the time when I pull an anecdote like that out of thin air. So but uh, because you were just talking about uh, your appreciation of 310 to Yuma and all the things it does well, and you're a Swamp Thing fan. Like, what do you want to see James Mangle do with this property? Oh, shoot. Uh, dig into the gothic horror nature. Dig into what we were speaking about before. A character who learns that brute force is not the way, that understanding is the way. Coming to see your opponent's point of view and speaking to them in a way that they're receptive to, helping to open their mind to the idea that what they're doing is not achieving their goals, is only perpetuating more violence. If you can actually find a way to actualize that, you know, on screen, give us some very real romance between Abigail and Swamp Thing. I think in today's climate, that could play very well when you use it as an analog for non-traditional relationships and people. It's like, you know, the idea of, hey, love is love and you don't have to understand it, but it's not hurting you. So just respect it and fucking acknowledge it and leave them, leave them alone. Let them be who they are, man. Uh, I feel like that is something that really could work if it's done right. Um, and. We have the technology to do it, so let's embrace some of the more funky visuals mm. that the comics bring with it. And while we're at it, bring in some of these excellent creature uh, sort of effects and, and makeups and costumes and designs like we saw in this movie, honestly, because Swamp Thing does go to some fucked up places when it comes to the creatures that he will encounter. Yeah. And Oddly enough, a lot of the things that you mentioned wanting to see, I think, are things that you praised about Mangold's handling of 310 to Yuma, especially sort of the the character positioning and how it is that story in particular is really about this outlaw who is maybe not quite at home in the world of outlaws, even though he's the best of them. And the more he's exposed to Christian Bale's character, the more he begins to understand the value of what Bale is doing. And so it does like slowly changes his mind over the course of time. So just like listening to all that, I think Mangle is actually going to be a really good fit for Swamp Thing, especially if he like dives into the source material and kind of hones in on the strengths of what the character does. I think he has shown the chops that he can handle it and do it uh, particularly well. There was never any hope for Indiana Jones five. So I'll never, <laughs> I'll never judge him for that. Uh, every mangled movie I've seen other than that one has been an absolute banger. So I'm down like a clown to see what he does with the swamp thing property. Cause that's the other thing of it. It's like, look at this movie. I mean, it, it's fun and, and it's a great time, you know, we're talking about it here and I'm celebrating it, but it's not a good swamp thing, you know, representation. (laughs) 
I have not seen the most recent TV show, so I really can't speak to how that show does the character or, you know, the story or any of that kind of thing. But I think it's easy to say the best version has not been done. And if anybody was going to do it right now, I'm pleased as punch that they've selected Mangled. I really hope it all comes together and uh, and I get to see it on a big screen. Yeah, and I think if we get, you know, success from something like Toxic Avenger, which at least is further along in the production process, we'll have a much better chance at sort of like renewed zeal over something like Swamp Thing, where you get a bigger crowd swell, more support at a, a smaller level, rather than it being like, here's the new like crown jewel of whatever we're pumping out at this time and you have to watch it and love it because it is the newest entry into the thing that we're doing. It's a very different model than the MCU has done so far. And like love the DC movies or hate them. The one thing that they did better, I would say than the MCU was that they let their directors be individuals in making their films. And maybe that was to the detriment of their overall cinematic universe. But I like the idea that like, we want our filmmakers to come here and make their version of this movie, not just be like a name on the masthead in order to drive people to seats kind of thing. And it, it felt like Marvel started to go that direction, you know, once they were popular enough to, to really like wield that kind of power in the industry. Yeah, I have to agree. You know, there's a lot of criticism about the MCU and how a lot of the movies are like samey. And um, the reason that criticism is there is because it's true. And it's nice that love it or hate it, you can have a studio that is sort of saying like, okay, let the artist come in and do what the artist wants to do because we're going to have lots of different things and that will attract lots of different viewers. And the people who dig it will dig it intensely and that will add up and that will work as opposed to this kind of Disney strategy of just McDonald's effect where everything is just the fucking same and we can count on the same amount of engagement if we just keep it all the fucking same. Well, it's like as as you're working towards something where it's like, hey, we've got this idea for a movie that's 20 films down the line. So we're going to need you to sort of toe the line and keep everything on par until we get to that movie that's 20 movies down the line. And then we'll figure out sort of like how everything's going to shake out after that. Which is ludicrous to begin with because society <laughs> is mutating so rapidly. You cannot for a second predict the business or entertainment realities of three to five years down the road. Okay, this is totally what I was I was fucking getting to. <laughs> Toxic Avenger. Our hero is a janitor, right? A <laughs> yeah. member of the working class yeah. who has like the shittiest job, you know, quote unquote, that most people can imagine. And he has been poisoned by industrial pollution and mm -hmm. sewage. Now, in 2024, let's just call it, even though we're not quite there yet. What a perfect hero for yeah. the mass populace to get behind. Uh, and he's being played by a dwarf actor, the most famous dwarf actor uh, in the country, probably the world right now. Right. 
Mm-hmm. It, 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 the, it couldn't be more perfect. And I feel the same way about Swamp Thing, Avatar for the Green, a symbol of the connective tissue of all life on this planet, right? It's not about different countries or nationalities or cultures. It is about life, all life, human and trees and sea otters and fish and fucking everything, right? And this is a creature that is steadfast against pollution and evil and destruction in all forms. And it wants to find a gentle way to just make those things stop. Again, could not be a better time for a hero like that to be sold to the public consciousness. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if there was ever a time where, let's say, Disney's grasp on the superhero industry was vulnerable, now seems like that time. We've got the boys which is a non-Disney superhero product on Amazon, which is very good and very popular. We're going to get Toxic Avenger. There's going to be pushback to the the sameness of what we've been experiencing since, what was Iron Man, 2008, I think? So it's like, look, those movies all have a certain benchmark of quality. I like the MCU. I'm not going to say that I don't like it. I've gone and I've seen, I think, all the movies at least. And I'm behind on the TV shows, but whatever. They're not going anywhere. And so I think like if there was ever a time for DC to strike this deal with bringing James Gunn in might whether or not like it ends up working out, the timing is probably as good as it can be. And then in what he did in Guardians three to close out his time with Marvel, like there is a very easy out for him to be like, make the company movie, take your paycheck do the thing you need to do to connect it to the other movies and just get out of there and go start fresh at DC. But he didn't do that. What he did was he went sort of back to the beginning, stripped away all of the unnecessary outside MCU stuff and really just made a movie about the characters that he cared about and the actors that he had worked with. And so in that way, it felt like very different than the rest of the MCU. And it was received pretty well, too. So are you confident in like James Gunn now helming DC and some of their properties at this point? Oh yeah. I like James Gunn quite a bit. The guardians movies were generally upwards of my favorite of the MCU flicks because they felt like they had a more singular defined and consistent identity. And Yeah, I think this also speaks to where the cultural zeitgeist is. We don't like our old heroes anymore. Uh, Luke Skywalker is a jackass failure, and we're sick of his (laughs) shit, right? Uh, Tony Stark used to be the cool rebel, but that was in 08 when the cool rebel was the guy who was a smarmy business asshole until he caught conscience Mm -hmm. and then used his money and power to do cool rebel things. That was 08. We're over that. If you were a smarmy business douche, fuck you. You're not going to be part of the solution. We don't care. Get out of here, fucko. And so, like, even a dude called Captain America, we're going to sit there and go, well, where were you? There's the My Lai Massacre, motherfucker. Like, that's just not where the cultural zeitgeist is anymore. And MCU kind of got it wrong. Uh, they, They... kept going back to the same trough for too long. 
and they weren't paying attention to where the needle was really moving. And so, yeah, I feel like they're going to be playing catch up. Now, I don't know yet if DC is going to like hit the mark and going to be the new hotness. But I do know that generally people are sick of the sameness of the MCU. Like when Blue Beetle came out, a criticism people had was, eh, it feels kind of like an MCU movie. Like that's a negative criticism now. Yeah, and Blue Beetle, I actually liked, and I felt like one of its biggest detriments was that it was wearing the DC brand from a DCEU that they know is dead at this point. So it's like, if you just release Blue Beetle, don't necessarily like talk how much it's part of DC, don't flash the logo all the time, and just let it be like a Giver kind of action sci-fi movie i think it does those things pretty well and like you get a a nice diverse cast with you know george lopez like leading the way on the comedy so like sure it has to fit into a certain pg-13 type of superhero box that we're all very familiar with at this point whether we want to be or not and that maybe holds it back from its full potential i think we we've entered a weird place where like i mean superhero fatigue is definitely real in terms of like people going to the cinemas and it's this thing of like they know that the properties that have shown up on the streaming service have sort of underperformed and then rather than try to understand why they've underperformed it's like oh let's blame our audience for like not getting it and it's like oh that's gonna work out real well for you so like i said i think it's a it's probably about as good a time as ever for dc to maybe take the baton and and run with it and take us in a different direction for heroes get into some of the blue collar stuff some of the swamp thing stuff where it's like very much a grounded earth level kind of character and take us away from the the godlike hero worship that we've had in so many of these other stories yeah because you know in the books again the ones that i have read and loved many of these stories are very personal and I think that's where people are at this point. I think people are in a very personal place where they can't really conceptualize global threats and global anxieties because those are so omnipresent and they are so debilitating. I think people are more comfortable with personal stakes and yeah. personal crises And they get a little more wrapped up in them. Like, I just think that's where we're at as a culture right now. And I think something a little bit more personal, a little more romantic, a little more gothic is going to appeal to people very well. And I think James Mangold is a director who just understands relationships. He understands the human condition. He understands human patterns, Um, you know. Everything he's done from Copland through Identity and onto 310 to Yuma, which you know damn well, sir. I thank you for shouting it out. Starting off my November Western month. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I am a big fan of that movie, and I'll sing its praises all day long. And he also did Walk the Line and Logan. and uh... Logan is one of the best goddamn comic book movies ever made. It's barely a comic book movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, but it's like so it, good. It manages. So that's why I'm like, I'm, I'm fairly confident that like of all the people you could put at the helm of a swamp thing, 
Mangold has not just the chop, excuse me, not just the directing chops to pull it off, but the experience in telling stories that seem to come from a place of sort of like philosophy. I mean, in Walk the Line, it's very much like I've read Johnny Cash's, uh, well, it wasn't his book, but it was a book about the philosophy of Johnny Cash's music and what it meant. And so to see sort of that brought to screen or to see something like Copland, where you've got this sort of like one holdout of like, the good cop that does things for the right reasons, who has honor for, and he's in a world of just like every other cop is corrupt and how his steadfastness sort of pushes back against everything else. So I think of all the people to really be in charge of a Swamp Thing product, Mangold's probably a really damn good choice. Sign me up. I'll see it. I'll see it and I'll like it. (laughs) Before we move on, I want to ask you, is there anything that you really wanted to talk about this particular Swamp Thing film before we before we cycle on to the next thing? Yes. uh, Final thought. Dick Durek done dirty. (laughs) Uh, The voice you hear in this movie is not the voice of the actor in the Swamp Thing costume doing all the action. And I don't know the name of the actor doing the voice, but it was overdubbed way after the fact. This was a studio mandate. The director didn't even know about it until the initial premiere. Imagine going to the red carpet. You're about to have your movie <laughs> premiere in front of the press. You get up there and you're like, what the fuck did I just hear? Yeah. You're like, what? That's not the right <laughs> voice. You like jump up. Hey, there's something wrong with the sound. You assholes. Yeah. It's, it's whack as fuck. Um, <laughs> apparently, and, and Jim Wynerski, the director still says to this day that, uh, Dick Durock's voice was fine. It was good. It was good for the character. And he doesn't understand why it was replaced. But, you know, especially at that point in his career, those decisions were made way above his head. And so he just kind of had you got to you roll with it. I know. I can't imagine being a studio head and like you watching the previews of this and you're like, I'm not into Swamp Thing's voice. Let's dub it all over. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like they chose a voice that like doesn't really match this giant hulking figure that walks out of the swamp either. Uh, yeah, I I don't know what to do with it because here's the thing is that the voice in the first movie in 82 is a really good representation of how he comes across in the comics. In the comics, his speech bubbles always have their own color and there's always these huge ellipses in between his sentences. He's like an ent from Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. It takes him a long time to get through a big sentence. It just is what it is. That's how he communicates. I mean, think about it. Trees grow very slowly. Yeah. And so a fucking, you know, plant man also communicates (laughs) very slowly. It takes a little goddamn patience. And in the Wes Craven movie, that is how he talks. You know, he kind of has those long sentences where there's pauses in between a lot of the words. In this movie, Return to the Swamp thing, nah. Nah, we're not doing that. He's just a guy. He thumbs up. Hey, I'm swampy. <laughs> he does a little thumbs up. 
And I, you know what? I don't know. Fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, he can't be delivering one-liners if he has to take like a prolonged breath in between the end of the joke and the punchline. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's so true. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm over here going like, I don't know what I want. I just... But that's the thing. I feel like I'm the least judgmental comic book fan on the planet. Maybe I'm not a real comic book fan because I'm not a judgmental prick. I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far because, you know, I like I know people that are like very much purists, like people that were mad that Christian Bale's character in the most recent uh, Thor movie didn't have like the particular look of Gore, the God Butcher from the comics. And it's like, well, yeah, because you're paying for christian bale so you don't want to like cover him in prostheses like you want christian bale and so like to me it makes total sense i know somebody else a friend of mine was like very upset that the the portrayal of the lizard in i think it was amazing spider-man the garfield one i forgot if it was the first or second i think it's the first one but that he didn't like he wasn't a snouted lizard that he didn't like look lizardy enough i'm like look man if that's your gripe that's gonna like hold you back from like watching this movie or enjoying it like you were just looking for an excuse to not like it i think because it's like he still looks like a freaking creature and that's all you really need to know you the nail on the head with that one right you they're looking for something to be pissy about you know and yeah, yeah i oh boy oh boy <laughs> all right well on that note speaking of people being pissy let's go to critics corner and now we get to hear what all of these angry critics said about Swamp Thing number two way back in 1989. It has a meta score of 39 overall. 39, you say? It's uh, yeah. not the lowest I've done on this show. <laughs> what can you what is um? I'm not good at investigating these things. What is a meta score reflective of? Because I've got a better understanding of Rotten Tomatoes and how the aggregate works with their shit but what like what is a meta score actually reflective of okay so meta score is like rotten tomatoes you get a 90 percent. that's 90 percent of critics have given it a positive review but most critics use some sort of scale so my understanding is that anything above the median on their scale say that's a three out of four stars a six out of ten whatever that makes it positive but the overall number reflected of like quality would not be a nine out of ten on a 90 percent at rotten tomatoes metascore is just literally like an aggregate of scores so it works pretty well with video games as well which i've used it uh, many times so, like, you know, the 39 would say that the average critic score for this movie is a 3.9 out of 10. Because <laughs> <laughs> here's the thing, and, 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 you know, I think you've come to know my taste a little bit as we've, you know, chatted through the film club and all. I put a lot of my opinion on what I feel the goals and the aims of the film are. Yes. You know? You can't compare Return of the Swamp Thing to The King's Speech. They're different <laughs> movies trying to do different things. And I and and I think you have to at least a little bit consider the budget because this movie didn't have gobs of money to to deal with. They had to spend it in very strategic ways. So when you consider all of those, 
and I consider what an entertaining, fun time this is, it's silly to me that anybody would have a really negative rating of the movie. It feels like if you're going to be negative about this movie, you have kind of unfair expectations about what you want from Return of the Swamp thing. Yeah. And I've talked to Sean about this multiple times about sort of like the power that expectations have over us. And uh, my sister's husband had posted something where he's like, if you never expect anything, you won't be disappointed. And, you know, so I try to apply that to movies. Of course, there are some expectations. There's some movies I get more excited for than others because, I mean, we're film fans. There's definitely stuff where it piques our interest. And I want to make sure that I go see this in theaters as soon as possible. Like I just bought my preview tickets for Godzilla minus one. Yes, last night I got a notification yeah. that it came through and I'm like, oh, crap, it's playing a few days early. It's on a Wednesday. There's only one screening like in the middle of the like early evening. I'm like, fuck it, I'm going. I don't care. Oh, that's going to be a mm, that's going to be a time. Yeah, but I think to, to man, your point, man, I hope I can get out and see that on the big screen. That movie looks great. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad it's getting the kind of rollout here that uh, Shin Godzilla didn't like Shin Godzilla was like a special event that they released like months after it had released in Japan. So I like that the appetite for a Japanese Godzilla film is big enough to actually like, hey, we're going to show this to you in IMAX in America. Like, that's a pretty big deal for a Godzilla film and a franchise that was sort of like relegated to like the goofy corners of the VHS world for many years, which is, you know, I can't complain. That's how I came across it and became a huge lover of the product. But what I was going to say is that, like, to your point, the way I sort of approach films is what is the idea? Like, what is the concept? And how is it executed? And that's sort of like my real barometer for how I gauge a film. And it's like, I'm not like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to dock it points here and there. It's just, no, what is the movie trying to do? And how well does it accomplish what it's trying to do? And I think the more movies you can meet on that level, the more you will find enjoyment in, in the long run. Yeah, and I have sort of been fighting my own left brain tendencies my entire life. I'm kind of a hippy dippy pothead kind of a movie fan. And nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. As analytical as my knee jerk reaction is always to be, I've always really resisted the notion of rating a movie on some kind of scale. You know, when a person says, Oh, I docked it half a point for this, Mm. or I docked it a point for that, or I, I, you know, if you know, you've heard my show. I don't do ratings or scales. Uh, movies to me, it's a very subjective art form, and my experience with it is fairly subjective. And it's fun to talk about the experience of watching a movie, what it made me feel, how it made me think. And it's not that I don't understand people's need to quantify things and make it. Oh, this is a four out of five. Or this is a 3.5 out of 5. If you're doing a 0.5 out of 5, then it's out of 10 for fuck's sake, people. (laughs) You're in denial. Get it together. Anyway. Let's get a shared (laughs) universal 10-point rating system for the ratings lovers out there. (laughs) Yeah, let's make it happen. So, yeah, like, I, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's a 39 on Metacritic. Yeah, good for them. Well, speaking of which, we start with a 20. So we start at the lowest end of the totem pole. And that <laughs> is a 20 from William Thomas of Empire. 
who says the world can only hope the Swamp Thing's abode is now bulldozered and turned into a shopping mall. Like, that's like the most evil thing you could say about a Swamp Thing movie. Like, not only did I hate this movie, like, I want salted earth at this point. Yeah, this guy is the villain in Swamp Thing 3. (laughs) There you go. He's trying to build a shopping mall over the swamp and he's dealing with. Yeah, and and there's going to be like a group of teens who are like, oh, me, the community center is going to get bulldozed. It's right down by the swamp. There's all this great wildlife down by the swamp. This big business doesn't even care. That's right, William Thomas. You just wrote yourself into the villain role for Swamp Thing 3. Nick and I are going to pen the script. That's and right. You are the villain. Yeah. William Thomas, those are two first names. That's pretty villainous a lot of the time. So I, I understand. <laughs> Moving on to the Washington Post. They gave it a 25. Richard Harrington. He says, some films aspire to be status. Some achieve it accidentally. Return of Swamp Thing does neither. It isn't shocking or entertaining. At best. It is a catalog of bad acting, unredeemed by humor, and it will quickly settle back into the swamp of anonymity accorded most minor comic book heroes. And that was June 26, 1989. So this is like right as the movie comes out, too. He's like, let me try and bury this as quickly as possible. Well, this, you know, this is the other thing about movies like this is that when enough time passes, you can see a movie like this and you can appreciate a lot about it and forgive a lot about it because of how much time has passed since it was made. And I think that especially people whose job it is to watch movies and write about them, I think they get a little hypercritical about anything that is made now. And so Mm. If you're writing in 1989, you're being hypercritical about movies that are being made in 1989 because you have no concept of what is to come in five years or 10 years. And so there's no charm to what is happening now. And especially back then when every jack off and I know I'm talking about the both of us. But every jack off (laughs) wasn't just on their computer going, this is what I think about this movie. These people were writing for publications. You said the Washington Post, right? A very major publication. This is a job. This is his job is to watch fucking movies. Every movie, even movies he's not interested in and write about him. And if he doesn't, he doesn't have rent. Fuck. Like, that's the thing. I try to get into the headspace of these people. And I say to myself, I don't give a rat's ass about your opinion. Because it is colored by a whole lot of trauma (laughs) and situational bias. Yeah. At the end of the day, like with everybody and their jobs, people are going to have bad days. And if you're having a bad day and you're going to see a movie that you don't want to see, that you feel like your editor has forced you into watching, you're going to end up in a situation where you're not having a good time, regardless of what the product is. And I think I end up seeing that more often than not with a lot of these exceedingly negative reviews because it's one thing to look at this movie and be like okay like it's not excellent in any like particular way or maybe it's not uh it doesn't expand on the ideas of the first movie in any way that i felt was meaningful like there's meaningful criticism to be sort of mined out of watching this film and watching the first swamp thing but like this is not that 
these people are like, no, nah, I'm here to take a steaming shit because I had a bad day. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, and consider the difference between what these people do and what movie podcasters like us of today do. You know, we take the time to, like, research into everything we can find out about the movie, when it was made, the reaction at the time, the opinions of the people who made it at the time versus their opinions about it now. I think a lot of people, certainly the people I like to listen to the most, they put a lot into digging into this one work of art and trying to dig out what the artists creating it wanted to do and celebrating that to the best of their abilities, while at the same time acknowledging the things that maybe didn't work so well. That's not at all what, you know, uh, publication fucking mm-hmm. film criticism is. It's, you know, again, like we, like I was saying a minute ago, it's my job mm-hmm. and I just got to fucking get this out. And this is all I do every fucking day is watch movies. And this movie, ah, fuck this movie. It was exactly what I decided it was before I started it. After yeah. I and, I, the title. And, and you and I, I mean, we also have like full creative control over what we're doing so we get to decide like what we're going to talk about how we're going to talk about it what we want to talk about and we do it for you know 90 minutes two hours like an extended period of time where this poor guy richard harrington his boss is like give me 500 words on swamp thing by the end of the night and so he just didn't have a good day (laughs) i i can't help it every time i imagine a guy with a big cigar Mm-hmm. You're gonna be 500 words on return to the swamping by the end of the night. I'll reach your ass. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe not that uh, aggressive, but pretty close. Uh, but yeah, like you have a very small column to work with. Like you have to fit into the the actual physical limitations of the print that you're working with. So you're typically given like a pretty narrow guideline, and you have to get it done so that it can be printed for the following morning's paper. So you really don't have a lot of time to spend with this either. Whereas like you and I can take as much or as little time as we want to to work on a film that we want to talk about. So it's a way different approach. So I'll I'll cut them some slack, but yeah, there's no reason to, you know, just hate for the sake of hating it. As Hunter S. Thompson used to say, well, I'm on deadline. Yeah, deadlines are real. Uh, well, for some people, for me, I don't adhere to them too strongly. Anymore. I, <laughs> I was try, say, but I fail I, often. <laughs> I, I, when you were speaking before about not starting your theme month on time, it really spoke to me because last year <laughs> I, I tried to do Western month for November and, and I kicked it off at a good time this year. Yeah. Last year, it took me until halfway through November until I st- it kicked off Western month and, I, and, it, and it went into December and I was like, yeah, fuck me. I didn't schedule this well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're your own boss, so it doesn't, doesn't ultimately matter that much. Correct, Amundo. All right, what else we got? Let's move on to Variety. This has no name attached to it because they're scared and they gave it a 40 <sighs> out of 100. It says the return of Swamp Thing is a scientific hokum without the fun. Without the fun, come on, that's unfair. Uh, second attempt to film the DC Comics character will disappoint all but the youngest critters. And hey, you know, I mean, we're we're not young anymore. I mean, we're not we're not super old either. But like, I, I can understand that this is you know a criticism that this movie is aimed at kids. But to to act like this movie's not fun when it basically like hits all the tentpole things that all of the other 80s action movies do like shit is blowing up like crazy 
you got a bunch of like henchmen who don't know how to shoot in a straight line who are wielding like automatic weapons you got giant monsters fighting you got lightning you got one-liners you got like the the good-looking blonde love interest it hits all of those things that every other 80s action movie does i'm telling you it you want to compare this to something? It needs to be like the Roger Corman Fantastic Four or something like that. That's what that's the weight class. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't fucking put <laughs> me in a ring against. I don't, I don't know. I'm so old and out of touch. I'm like Tyson, but like who is a real fighter? Tyson Fury is the. It's still Tyson Fury there's, is the world champ at heavyweight, depending there, on. Uh, there's a new Tyson. Yeah, he's. He's like the, they call him the Gypsy King, and what's always hilarious is that like he shows up and he's like in horrible shape, but he's got fast hands and good footwork, and so he's still the like the heavyweight champion of the world. But fucking uh, hey, more power to him. Yeah, exactly. I'm like the fact that he can show up like fatter than ever and still manage to win. It's like oh, that's crazy. That's that's a real talent right there. Just like not Rip. in shape, not training hard. Yeah, but you wouldn't put somebody like me in a ring with that guy, and then nope. after he mops the floor with me in one in one round, go, huh, that Newman, what a what a joke, what an idiot, <laughs> that guy sucks, he's terrible. You see what a terrible of a fighter he is? My God, um, yeah. So it's like I don't know, people who shit on this movie, it feels like they were not only expecting too much, but they had no concept of the fact that they were living in 1989. How could they? It was 1989. <laughs> Bitch, we're all still spinning. Uh, we got uh, 450s on the board. So I'm going to let you pick your poison. We got the New York Times, TV Guide Magazine, Time Out, and the Globe and Mail from Toronto. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. The Globe and Mail from Toronto, that's one publication? Yes. I love my can Canadian friends. Let's do that one. All right. They gave us, like, a, a sentence that they barely strung together. A mere action suspense adventure lacking the depths of the original. All right. With Ray Conluge. Lacking know. the depths of the original? <laughs> Look, I'm hot for Adrian Barbeau just as much as the next dude, but come the fuck on the depths of the original. Suck my big toe. I don't think so. No, no. Sorry, Ray. All right. Yeah, but I mean, like, that's a that's someone who just was like, it's not the original. Don't care for it. I'm giving it an exactly median score and moving on and just getting on with my day. It, it's silly, too, because to say the original makes it sound as if the character didn't exist until they made the movie in 1982. You know, he'd been in comics for over a decade at that point. So, I mean, not to be that guy, but mellow the fuck out. And I mean, like, I know Wes Craven became a huge deal, but in 1982, when he made this movie, he was not that big of a deal. Mm hmm. And you can kind of tell when you watch the movie, it's competent. It's competent. And sometimes that's all you can ask for, and that's okay. Sometimes I only just want to see a competent, competently made film. Sure. But I mean, like, it's obvious why by 89, there was no hope of getting him to come back. Yes, exactly. And you know what I mean? He's like, moved on to bigger was... and better things and sharpened his iron on Swamp Thing and moved on. Honestly, I mean, you could compare him to Jamie Lee Curtis, right? Like, 
fucking late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, get her in those slasher movies. But late 80s, forget about it. That girl's a star. She ain't doing those movies no more. But then the 90s and the, the aughts roll around and she's back. Yeah, but that's the thing, right? It's it's like almost high fucking budget. Like it's like more prestige. It's fucking huge distribution, even for H2O, right? Yeah. So it's like, I mean, now she's Oscar winner, Jamie is, Lee Curtis. Right. <laughs> hey. And, and didn't Oscar West Craven, winner. Didn't that happen with Wes Craven too, where he left and came back and did do Nightmare like 10 something years down the line? I get mixed up with him because like, I don't know if he ever went away. Like, when was Wishmaster? That was like 93. Is that right? Uh, I want to say 94, 95, but definitely in that pocket of like not quite the early 90s and maybe not quite the late 90s. That movie was way better than I thought it was yeah. going to be. I didn't I didn't watch it until like, I don't know, ballpark it's, it eight years ago. Yeah, it seems kind of like cheesy on the surface. And then I watch it. I'm like, this is actually a pretty solid horror movie. Like, if you're going to make a horror movie about a genie, like, this is about as good as it's going to get. Wes Craven, fucking rock star. Yeah. All right. Nah. Let's, let's close it out uh, with Peter Travers of Rolling Stone. Gave it a 63. This is maybe the most positive thing I've ever seen Peter Travers uh, give, <laughs> give a rating on that I've read on this show, at least. Uh, so I'm a little surprised, but he says, go ahead and scoff. But this cheap Jack sequel to the 1982 cult favorite about a hunky scientist, Dick Durek, turned talking plant delivers more tacky hit and miss hilarity than a cineplex full of teen sex comedies. Nailed it. Yeah, no, that actually sounds pretty positive. Although it's very positive. Although Ray Weiss was the sexy scientist from the first one, but that's okay. We're Sorry, not going to. Yeah, Pete. Yeah, Pete. We're putting you on notice. <laughs> and that wraps up Critics Corner. That's how we do it. We that's get out of here. We get out of here with the best review. So we always like we always get uh, to end on a positive note. But I want to give you an opportunity to talk about uh, your show. You've been doing it for what seems like a really long time now, but. You're you're into the hundreds. What was this? One hundred and thirty nine. Yeesh. Yeah. And and the thing of it is, is that the episode numbers are very deceptive because if it's a particular subseries like I am Batman or Tarantino Jamborino or Classic Corner with Mom, that takes over the episode count. So whatever number you're seeing, like 139, it's actually at least 20 to 50 more than that. Uh, We've been running now for a full four years. We started the first week of 2020. Oh, wow. Was was this a pandemic project then? Kind of. That was a bit of a coincidence, you might say, because I started the first week of January 2020 and like the pandemic didn't really get rocking until like late February, early March, at least for me in Chicago. Uh, This was something I'd been thinking about starting for a long time. And my now wife at the time was my girlfriend, and she really inspired me to kind of pull the trigger and just do it. And uh, and I started movies four days in the first week of 2020, and I have not missed a week since a new episode every Friday night. Friday night. Actually, I put it out very early in the morning on Friday. I don't know why I said that. 
No, um, if you want a Friday night show, listen to this because I'll finish this about 10 30. <laughs> yeah, right. This and, is more uh, of a Saturday morning show. <laughs> and yeah, it's just, you know, it's a it's a non-pretentious, easy access movie chat podcast, all about a different movie with a different guest every episode. It's all about examination and celebration. We don't get that negative on my show because any movie that actually gets made and released is a miracle because it took so many different people to make it happen. And my only requirement and demand is that my guest is excited to talk about the movie we are talking about. But I smoke a lot of weed and I don't like to focus on one thing too much. So I've got a lot of sub series. We've got I am Batman. We've got Tarantino Jamborino. We've got classic corner with mom. We've got the Rex brothers where me and my actual brother, Phil talk about a movie that only one of us have seen. And the other one just saw for the first time we've got, uh, what's the dog one? We've got puppy tails, <laughs> puppy tails. That's I was thinking Paw Patrol and I'm like, no, that's a dog cartoon. That's a, that's a real <laughs> property. Uh, no puppy tails where me and my dog Han Solo, who is no longer with us, uh, discuss different dog movies. Yes. It's a thing. Check it out. And yeah, man, that podcast is available. All over the damn place. Spotify, Audible, Podcast Addict, Google Podcasts. Ridiculous. Find me. My ass is everywhere. And definitely check me out on Twitter because it's the new Sears Tower and I just won't call it anything else. <laughs> At Movies Days. Movies is spelled regular. Days is spelled with a Z. I'm just pleased as punch to be a part of the Scheist International Film Club. And you should... <laughs> Keep checking out what Nick Scheisty has to do because it's good stuff. Yeah, we're doing eight millimeter tomorrow. Oh shit, I need to watch that, don't I? Yeah, me not, too. Not like I chose it or anything. Ah <laughs> uh, man, you better believe I'm gonna be coming at you with some Nick Cage impressions. I can't help myself. I get all voice happy with the crowd. I bank on it, believe me. <laughs> uh <laughs> But uh, I'm going to make sure that I put up all of your information in the show notes as well. So it's super easily accessible for anybody that just wants to click on it and have it take them where the Internet takes them. Uh, do you have like the rest of your sort of Westerns already set for the rest of the month or? Yes. You want to uh, tell the audience what you're doing next beyond 310 to Yuma? Absolutely. Y'all check out the rest of Western month on movies for days every november we dedicate to westerns we're doing 310 to yuma this week uh later in the month we've got the quick and the dead oh another bush russell crow on now another russell right. crow yeah bush cassidy and the sundance kid and young guns too oh, wow. yes because last year we did young guns so check that episode out and then watch, and then listen to Young Guns 2 coming out later this month. Western month. Movies for days. It, and I'll uh, I'll tell you something else. Uh, we got a sub-series all about Nicolas Cage That's on right. Movies for Days. That's Rage, cage match? For Rage for cage. cage. And then they go yeah. into the cage match. They go into the cage match. It's always two different Nicolas Cage movies that we pin head to head in the cage match. So you couldn't do better than to take November and go through my back catalog of Rage for Cage and pair it up with Nick Vember, the Scheist International Film Club. 
Yeah. Did you did you do eight millimeter? We have not. So I can't can't use the cheat sheet then, huh? I was going to (laughs) say it's you're going to get unfiltered Newman coming at you tomorrow. (laughs) But you know me, man, I'm respectful. We got a whole group of people, awesome folks who are going to be talking about this movie. So I will sit on my hands patiently until it is my turn to speak. I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I expect you to bring the the cagiest action of them all so uh i'm looking forward to it i do have to still watch it i've seen it before of course which is why i put it up and i don't even remember why i think last year we didn't actually do like themed months like this we did donald help facilitate the nick cage tournament which was we put like 32 nick cage movies into the draft we all drafted and then we had like a showdown tournament over the course of the month and and I think I picked eight millimeter and it was like one of my movies that got eliminated early. And I was like, no, this movie's better than you think it is. So now we're here. Do you remember the title of that George C. Scott movie that has kind of similar plot elements to this? Because I can't remember the title. Eight I've never millimeter? seen it. It's similar to eight millimeter. It's, you know, George C. Scott is like hunting down like a fucking film of. Ooh. I think it's his daughter and it's something real nasty. And then he finally sees it and he's like sitting in the theater and we just watch him watching it. And he's like, that sounds familiar. And I had just like looked up George C. Scott the other day for something. And I don't remember. I love George C. Scott, the changeling exorcist three. God, he's good. Yeah. Angry, drunk asshole. I love him. (laughs) Well, on that note, I want to wish everybody a good night. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being here and talking Swamp Thing with me. Not just the movie, but all of your Swamp Thing knowledge coming into play. Absolutely, positively. Thank you for having me. And you and I got to work out a time for you to come on movies for days, man. I'd love to have you. I know somebody snaked in there and took Pontypool off your list. And I was so heartbroken. I was like, I can't even think of anything else that I would do in place of Pontypool from this list. So I'll just sit it out and I'll. I'll listen to the episode and cry in silence. (laughs) Something will come to you and you just hit me up, man. Hit that DMs and go, wait, what about this one? Absolutely. Uh, So, yeah, you let me know if you have a theme month or something coming up. I'll think about it and then uh, we'll work something out in the future. But I'm not going anywhere. We'll we'll be here on X until it crashes and burns completely. As to the app, man. All right. I guess I'll talk to you tomorrow morning, won't I? Cool. Thank you again for your time and i will talk to you in the morning peace thanks again to newman for coming by the show hanging out and talking the return of swamp thing if you like what you heard make sure you check out his show movies for days and you can find him on twitter x talking movies showing you what's going on on the show at movies days with a z And of course, thank you to everyone who took the time to listen to this episode. I know you have a lot of choices when it comes to podcasts, and I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you do, please consider leaving a rating and telling a friend about it. And the new support page is live at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash badmovieswelove. I'd love to hear from you, so if you have a bad movie you love and or maybe would like to be a guest on the show, you can contact me now at badmovieswelove at thescheiss.com or badmovieswelove on Twitter and Instagram, and that's love with an L-U-V. And as always, take care, be well, stay safe, and have fun however you get your movies.